Hi, good morning, everyone. <laughs> Got a nice sized crowd here today. This is great. The weather's finally, well, now it's not sunny, but it was sunny. On and off, it's been sunny. Um, welcome to the 14th annual genealogy lecture. Um, we've been doing this for 14 years now. Um, Jeff Corman is in the back of the room who used to be the one doing it, um, and he probably can't believe that this is the 14th <laughs> at this point. Um, I'm Caprice DeLillo. I am the assistant manager of the Maryland Department, um, and we're really excited to have Angela Walton Raji here today. Um, but before we get to that, I have a couple of announcements that I need to make and some housekeeping issues that um, I want to let you guys know about. Um, I want to let everybody know to not forget that um, the Pratt has um, a wonderful lecture series, um, tons of genealogy programming, and the Maryland Department does a lot of genealogy programming as well. Um, so keep your eye on the compass if you get the compass, um, flyers if you are if you've liked our Facebook page or you follow us on Twitter, we make announcements there as well. So just kind of keep your eye out. Um, also, I'm going to be handing around um, this along with a pen. This is our um, email, our genealogy email list. So if you're not currently receiving emails announcing genealogy programs that we're putting on, please add your, your name and your email to this. And I, I want to ask you to please, please, please write legibly. <laughs> I know some of us have doctor's handwriting and it's difficult. And if that's true, maybe you can get the person sitting next to you to write it in. <laughs> so I'm going to start passing this around. Okay. And um, I also wanted to just mention um, this year we're going to be continuing with our um, what's okay. become a very popular um, genealogy programming, our genealogy circle. Um, we hold meetings four times per year. Um, this year we've already had one. Um, Steve Davidson, the manager of the Maryland Department, gave a talk on researching, the, researching uh, your family history at the DAR. Um, we're going to have another one coming up in April. There's a flyer for it in your pack. It, um, on um, sharing your research experiences. So um, if you're interested in that, take a look at the flyer. Um, and then we're going to be having two more coming up um, during probably the late summer and in the fall, and I will be uh, sending out an email on those. So again, if you're not on the email list, please go ahead and, and sign in there. Um, I want to just thank a couple of people. Um, I want to thank the library board for continuing to support this every year. Um, this is something that they've agreed to give us funding for every year. We really appreciate that. Um, I want to thank the staff of uh, the Southeast Anchor Library. I don't see any of them in here. But um, if you happen to step out and wander into the library, please be nice to them. We descend on them every year. Um, and uh, you know how we are. <laughs> so just, you know... Uh, be nice to him. Um, I want to thank the, the Maryland Department staff who are outside, um, who have been checking you guys all in, um, and also Dave, who is somewhere in the back of the room, who has set up all of our AV today, um, and who is going to be recording this presentation today. Um, 
and then now a couple of, uh, of housekeeping announcements. Um, you, all, you guys all should have gotten a USB drive, either just the small drive or a, a bracelet drive. I want to let you know that Angela's handouts, which also are in your packets, um, have been preloaded on those drives. Um, as well as some handouts um, on doing genealogical research at the Pratt Library. So we've got information about the types of resources we have at the Pratt Library, um, what kinds of things you can expect to find, what department you need to go to if you're looking for particular records or particular resources. Um, so that's, that's what's on those USB drives. Um, we are going to be providing lunch. Um, it's going to be a sandwich, chips, a drink. Um, we have several different types of sandwiches. Um, if sandwiches are not your thing, uh, there's plenty of restaurants in the area. You'll have 45 minutes. Um, we'll be breaking for 45 minutes, so you're welcome to leave the library, go have lunch, um, and then come back. And um, there is an agenda in the packet, so you'll know what time we're going to be starting again. Um, Okay, and so the agenda um, for today, we're going to be starting, as soon as I get done with these uh, housekeeping uh, announcements, we're going to be starting and we're going to be going from 10.30 to 1.15 uh, for the morning session. There's going to be two, Angela's going to be presenting two talks, Native American Re uh, Genealogy Research, The Basics, and Researching Blended Families in 19th and 20th Century Records. Um, she's going to be giving about a 10 to 15 minute break in between those two. Um, then we'll break for lunch for 45 minutes, as I mentioned. And then in the afternoon from about 2 o'clock to about 4.30, um, she'll be giving two more talks exploring the roles for black Indian history, from the Dawes roles to the Guillaume Miller roles, and then um, avoiding pitfalls in African Native American history. And again, she'll be giving a, a 10 to 15 minute break for that. Um, as I mentioned, um, we've got a camera that's recording um, right there, and just we ask if you could just kind of be aware of the camera. Certainly if you have to get up and pass by it, that's fine, but just kind of keep it in mind. Um, restrooms, um, if you need to go to the restroom, you're going to go um, straight out these doors, to the left, up the stairs, and to the left again. Um, and then as far as parking, I've had a couple of folks asking me about parking. Um, parking in the area is mostly meter. If you parked in the lot, I believe that's four hours. Someone correct me. Okay, four hours. Um, and then for street parking, I believe it's two hours, and then you have to put more money on again. Um, because Angela will be giving breaks in between the talks and you'll have time for lunch, um, you, can, you, know, you, you should be able to go out and feed the meter if necessary. Um, and then the last thing that I want to say is you'll see an evaluation in your packet. Um, I cannot stress enough how important these evaluations are. Um, we look at them very closely, and we use them as justification when asking for more money for next year's talk. So please, please, please fill those out. Okay. So, um, Angela Walton-Raji, who we are fortunate enough to have with us today, um, she is a nationally known author and African-American and Native American genealogist. She hosts, hosts a weekly African Roots podcast devoted to African-American genealogy news, methods, and events. And she is one of the founders of AfroGenius.com, the oldest online website for African-American genealogy. 
She's the only genealogist in the nation to present regular genealogy lectures at the Smithsonian Museum of the American Indian in both the Washington, D.C. and New York facilities. Her book, Black Indian Genealogy Research, is the first and only book to address the documentation of African Americans with ties to Native Americans within the family structure. Um, I also had a chance to speak with her quite a bit this morning, and um, I can say from personal experience that she's very warm and very approachable. Um, so um, please join me in welcoming Angela Walton Raji. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Well, I want to thank you all for being here. It's a real pleasure. Before we get started with anything, let me get, tell you a little bit about myself. I'm from the town of Fort Smith, Arkansas. Some of you may have heard of it. And if you haven't, you've probably heard of our most famous citizen, Judge Parker the Hanging Judge. Well, that's our claim to fame. Fort Smith is a town right on the Oklahoma border. My father's from Oklahoma. My mother is from Arkansas, and I grew up in that frontier town. It's a community that also borders two Indian nations. The north side of Fort Smith borders the Cherokee Nation, and the southern part of the city borders the Choctaw Nation. My own background, my great-grandmother, whom I knew very well, she was born in the middle of the Civil War and did not pass away until 1961. So she was 98 years old when she died. She was from the Choctaw Nation. She spoke Choctaw fluently. Only time we would hear her speak it was when her brother, Uncle Joe would come to visit and they would speak together. But being in a community such as Fort Smith, it's a western town, it's kind of like Dodge City, the brand new Marshalls Museum that's being constructed is going to be constructed in Fort Smith. So if you're traveling out west after 2016, you'll be able to, to visit that site. But I grew up certainly hearing a lot about Indian territory. Um, if you ever saw the movie True Grit, you know, the bad guys were brought into Fort Smith in front of Judge Parker. And uh, it's a community where ever, almost everybody in town says that they're either Cherokee or Choctaw. And I mean everybody, whether you're white or black, if you have any roots that go back more than a generation, someone is going to be either Cherokee or Choctaw. And a few are going to say they're Creeks because Muscogee is, of what I'd say the heart of the Creek Nation, although their capital is in the town of Okmoggi, Oklahoma. But I started researching the records that I'm going to be sharing with you. I started researching them in 1991 and went on a trip to the National Archives, and this was in May of 1991, and found some records that I have been talking about ever since, but I had to educate myself in terms of what I was looking at. My great-grandparents and my grandfather were Choctaw freedmen, meaning my grandfather's parents, both my great-grandparents, were at one point slaves in Indian territory in the Choctaw Nation. Yes, the five civilized tribes, as they referred to, were also slaveholding tribes as well. The history is a very interesting one that's been documented, but I had to educate myself. I've also, certainly living here in the mid-Atlantic, had to learn about other kinds of records. And I've started researching everything from New England to Texas and points in between, and have found some amazing records that reflect Native American families and blended families, black and Indian families, white and Indian families, and there's even a category within Oklahoma records called 
intermarry white families as well. And the Cherokee Nation, you'll find some roles uh, that refer to adopted colored citizens and so on and so on. But one of the things that I've learned is that there are hundreds of thousands of records that really reflect Indian ancestry. Now in this first section, uh, session, I'm going to really just talk about the basics. I'm going to just give a very broad overview and in the next three sessions we're going to really look in detail at some records and if you have or feel that you have an interest you may want to take a look depending upon what part of the country your family may be from that might dictate what sets of records that you that you're looking at. I'm curious and we'll just like to see a quick show of hands. How many of you have native ancestry in your family? Quite a few hands are going up. So definitely some some maybe maybe not. Some of you maybe have heard references to an ancestor who was Native American, and that's possible. Well, we're going to look at how to explore all of those, those statements that you may have heard as a child. Uh, sometimes it may be accurate, sometimes it may have been a myth, but we're going to look at a number of records. And of course, you know, the question is, well, where do you begin? Uh, what tribe are you going to look at? How do you know what's out there? And if there was an Indian ancestor in the family, certainly you want to know, well, how can I really go about proving that? I use the word prove sometimes very cautiously because there are individuals who come to me and say, can you help me prove that I'm an Indian? And I often say, well, what are you now? You know, <laughs> so it's, it's an often a kind of a, a concept and a term, I think, that can get misused from time to time. But there are a lot of documents that are out there to be found, and we're going to talk about some of those. And, of course, a lot of people have heard things. Oh, Grandma was a Cherokee. Oh, where did she live? Indiana. Okay. Uh, where did her parents live? Well, I don't know. I think they came there from West Virginia. You know, people have this, and sometimes you'll hear a tribal reference, which is really sometimes generic. Cherokee Nation is one of the largest in, in the country of federally recognized tribes. So sometimes it is perhaps a generic term as opposed to a specific tribal term. But uh, we're going to talk about that uh, in terms of what that all means. And also, I've heard people say, well, you know, our, our grandpa was an Indian, but he never said what tribe he was. So what do I do? And of course, my question is, well, what do you want to do? Um, I am a genealogist, so I hope that your goal is to tell your family's story. And all of the stories are valid, regardless of the ethnic origin. All family stories are valid. But of course, there are those particular questions, and a lot of people think this is something that's really elusive. It's very difficult to document. Not really as difficult as one might think. And of course, there are many people who will say, oh, you could just look at my great-grandmother and tell she was Indian, just look at her. Or she had a certain lifestyle that was Indian, whatever that might mean. Please finish the sentence for me. She was very quiet and smoked a pipe, and her hair was so long. What? Finish the sentence. She could sit on it. Everybody's got some ancestors sitting on her hair, <laughs> which is kind of interesting, but um, that's not genealogy. That is not how you're going. And that doesn't really prove anything. Hair length is not a qualification 
for being native. No more than cheekbones, high cheekbones, prominent cheekbones. What does that mean? Have you ever seen a picture of a person from Somalia or Ethiopia or Eritrea? Very prominent cheekbones and no ties to North America. And of course, there are other stories. Well, you know, uh, no, we're part Indian, I know it, but they had to hide it because you know it was so hard being an Indian. Well, okay. Try being any person, try being a black person in the 19th century when slavery was still going on, even if you were a free person. You still had a lot of challenges as the descendants of Solomon Northrop who were free. The fact is that a lot of people didn't hide their identity as much as we may think that they did. And of course, there's the rumor that somebody hid in the hills because they wanted to go and avoid being in the reservation. Although the Treaty of New Ashota allowed Cherokees to remain and become United States citizens if they chose to stay, which is why one of the three federally recognized tribes today are the Eastern Cherokees. They never left, and they were not all moved at gunpoint. One of the things that's very interesting, and if you ever have a chance to visit the um, National uh, Cherokee Heritage Center in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, one of the things that surprises people is that they will point out that the Cherokees actually oversaw their own removal. And so some of the things that people hear are not quite exactly the same. It was a painful removal, the Trail of Tears. Many people did die, but it wasn't... Um, anytime anybody was moving anywhere in the 19th century, that was a difficult journey. And... But again, sometimes things were not quite the way we perceived them to be. Article 14 of the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit for Choctaws, uh, signed in 1829. Article 14 said, you have a right to remain. And many did, which is why today you have a tribe of Mississippi Choctaws today. There's a big casino down there. Some of you have maybe been there before. So, But anyway, how do you document it? How do you get through this maze of confusion, and how do you really figure it all out? Is it true, or is it just something that people have said? Can you really document Indian ancestry? What are the records, if there are any, to find? And did they actually count Indians on the census records? Well, one of the things we're going to do is kind of look at the history a bit, and probably the one rule, if nothing else, for you to do is get a chance to study, read, learn the history, the history of the community where your ancestors are from. And, of course, you want to ask oral history questions and ask really pertinent questions that you can. We're going to talk about finding the resources and where they're located. And there are some limitations. Not everyone is going to be able to document their Indian ancestry. But we are going to explore what those resources are. Now, I always tell people, use basic genealogy methodology. And you always start, of course, with the facts that you have. You're beginning with yourself. And you're going to start, pull out that standard pedigree chart that we all know what that looks like. But start to talk to the elders as well. Record data as much as you can, but don't forget to work with your own family archives. And you might say, we don't have an archives. I'll bet you do if you or a cousin or a relative has a shoebox full of old funeral programs and obituaries. That's part of your family archives. Many of us know one person in the family 
who goes to everybody's funeral. Everybody. They don't even have to know who died. But if somebody who the church is having a funeral, they're going to be right there, and they're coming back with that funeral program. That, that funeral Mary is a person you want to get to know because you want to see that treasure trove of funeral programs and obituaries that they have. Oh, photos, uh, yearbooks, other kinds of documents that are in the family, that's part of the family archives as well. And of course, there are the traditional records that genealogists use. We love vital records, birth, marriage, death. We also use the federal census, which many people refer to as the engine that kind of propels your genealogy through certainly the last two centuries anyway. And of course, if there are any military records available, you do want to use them. So when you're talking about oral history, well, you do want to ask some of the most important questions. Now, when I talk to a person who's an elder for the first time, one of the things beyond, and if you're recording it, always get the person to state their name at the beginning because that, that taped interview becomes an artifact as well. But after you get the basic information, I like to ask an elder, Stop and think when they were a child, who is the oldest person that they can remember? That's a very, very useful question. And let's allow, just allow them to talk. There are a lot of sites, if you go on a site like Google, where you can get a lot of good information in terms of how to conduct oral history. But one of the questions in relation to our topic of the day is uh, whether or not there was a particular person in the family that was said to be of native ancestry. And of course you want to know did you know that person? Did you know him? Did you know her? And you want to know, well, why were they always said to have been Native American? Did they live near a community? Were they part of a tribe in which they had contact? And these are questions that you do want to be able to ask. Was there a community of Indians who lived near the family homestead, who lived near the ancestral home? If a person is saying, and they're saying that they came from Georgia, but they're going to say that their ancestors were Blackfoot Indians, really? Study the local history and see if there was ever any interaction historically in that county from Blackfoot Indians you're probably going to be surprised what you may learn. Did this person visit individuals from the community if there was one close by? Did they visit them and did they visit her? This is a really valid question. Did the person speak another language besides English? And what kind of religion did he or she practice? And did this person ever talk about their elders if we're talking about that identified Indian ancestor. Now one of the questions, the particular as you see it's in bolded, why was this person said to have been of native ancestry? This question I sort of highlighted because it sort of gives you an idea of what to do next. If the person says, well, yeah, yeah, this person um, had some land that was given to them. They had this, had this record that had their roll number on it. That gives you a clue of what to do next to try and identify that information. But if they're just going to say, well, she just had that look, whatever that look means, and um, at least you may realize, okay, maybe I'll just have to now try the standard genealogical process to find out more information. One of the 
other critical questions on that list was whether or not there was a community nearby. Because again, it's very rare that a person would totally abandon a community that they were part of, particularly if it's a community, it's a strong, close-knit community, and they had their own language. Sometimes the only chance that relative may have had, if they married into an English-speaking family, the only chance to practice their mother tongue may be back in that community. So it's a valid question. And sometimes you may have to do the research to find out, but the best way to find out, join your local historical society. There are going to be a lot of articles that are going to come up and reflect the community's history. And so it's very, very important that you become really an authority of your local community history. Some of you who are genealogists have probably heard of the term cluster genealogy or location-based genealogy. It's a study of the community. When you find your ancestor's name on a census roll, hopefully you know, look a few pages before and a few pages after the very page where you find your ancestors listed because you're looking at the community in its entirety. You get to see who their neighbors were. You probably will get to see who the local merchants were, who were the people who had money, more than likely people with whom they had to conduct business. So you want to get that flavor from your research as well. Did the person speak a language other than English? This is going to be a clear indicator that there may be something to follow up on in terms of looking at that family history and that ancestor's history. But when you finally get to the records, and we're going to look at a number of records in, uh, later today, but vital records, birth records, marriage records, death records. I should actually add divorce records too. Sometimes they're even more revealing than a simple marriage certificate. Um, divorce records are actually kind of fun to read, um, get all kinds of interesting details. But vital records are critical to the process. Whether or not you're doing Native American genealogy or any kind of genealogy, vital records are always important. And where do you get vital records? They're in the state capitol in your Office of Vital Records. Sometimes they're called something different uh, by state. The Hall of Records is a source for Maryland. I don't know about Virginia. Uh, a lot of people will use their local courthouse, which is a resource, but there's always an official Office of Vital Records for every state. And, of course, your census records, both state census and federal census. The federal census has been taken every 10 years since 1790, and state census can vary. Not every state conducted their own internal census, but many did. You want to find out if your home state or your ancestral state was one of them. And there are the specialized records that we're going to look at as well. I mentioned vital records, and this is a vital record from North Carolina. And on this particular record, you'll see... Um, this gentleman died in 1938, and uh, Mr. George Brayboy is the name of the deceased, and you see that under color or race, he is identified as being Indian. There is no tribal identification because the question is race, and it's not one of specifics. Um, asking, are you Lumbee, are you Cherokee, are you something else? Uh, but the fact is that this is an example because, yes, people were identified from Native communities in vital records as well. 
Everybody knows what a census record looks like, but very few people are familiar with this document. This document is something that was created for two census years and only two census years, 1900 and 1910 only. The rest of the census years, people were captured and enumerated regularly, but they're on the typical census page where there are 50 people on the page. The difference in the 1900-1910 special Indian census, I call it, and you'll see right here, it clearly says the Indian population was documented in this particular um, uh, this particular page, as opposed to 50 people per page being enumerated, only 25. And you'll see the, the page is divided because there's some special questions relating to Indians. But the first 25 names are the people who are being described. The columns are the typical columns that you see, age, race, sex, um, uh, birthplace of the, of the person, of the father, of the mother, and occupation. The bottom half of the special Indian census of 1900 and 1910 asked other questions. They want to know the tribe of the person, and the numbers refer to the numbers of the corresponding line at the top. So if you're on line number 10 down here, it's describing the person in line number 10 from the top. They ask for the tribe. They asked for the tribe of the father, the tribe of the mother. And in 1910, it's very interesting, and I'll show you a, a blank form that you can download offline as well. Uh, they ask percentage of Indian blood. And they'll ask what percent Indian, what percent white, what percent Negro. And they'll ask some other questions, too, about the kind of dwelling that they live in. But the fact of the matter is, for two census years, these special census records existed. And we're going to look more closely at them, so don't worry that you couldn't see it very well. I realized it was a bit blurred. There are some other specialized Indian records that we're going to look at. And uh, some of them are pretty large. And whether your ancestors really came from that area or not, I will probably encourage you to look at one, the Miller Roll in particular. But where do you go to find the records? Well, the National Archives has a lot of them. Things have changed. Now, I personally have used the National Archives in Washington, and I have used the National Archives facility, or the, as it's called, the Federal Records Center in Fort Worth, Texas as well. But thankfully, times have changed. I don't spend as much money in gas or parking or the mark train because a lot of the records now that I used to go down to D.C. to look at they are digitized. I can stay at home in my pajamas and look at the same records. And these records are available in more than one online site, and we'll talk about that in a second. Congressional records. Many people are familiar with the records that Congress creates, those thick bound books that libraries have. Well, congressional records from early on, from I'd say the 1860s onward, are amazing, full of detail, because if there was an issue that was being taken to Congress, well, it was always recorded. Even back in the period of the American State Papers in the 1830s, you'll find the names of people who were being removed from Florida, Seminoles, when they were being um, sent to Indian Territory, you find the names of citizens actually a part of the congressional record. So it's interesting to see that. And most research libraries or research institutions uh, universities 
have the congressional record as well. Um, your state archives is always good. If there was a strong Indian population, and if there is still a strong Indian population in your state, then your state archives can be very, very useful. There are also, of course, as I just mentioned, the online sites, which, of course, I'm on them all the time. Now, on this list, you see archives.gov, which is the NARA, National Archives site. You see Family Search, you see Fold 3, and you see Ancestry. Now, uh, Fold 3 and Fold3.com, some of us used to know this site as footnote.com. It's now called Fold 3 and Ancestry. Those are subscription sites. You do have to pay for them. However, many libraries have subscriptions. And uh, Enoch Pratt, I believe, has Ancestry as well. I see a nod from the back there. Uh, Fold 3, does Enoch Pratt also have Fold 3? Okay. Uh, Fold 3 is useful, and I'll talk about that in a minute as well. Fold 3 is primarily a military site. But when you go to the site, hit browse, and then see the records, there's a little button that says non-military records. And you click on that, and you'll see a plethora of other records that are there, including a very, very impressive Native American collection on Fold 3. The good thing is that Ancestry purchased Fold 3. So some of the records that were at one time only on Fold 3 Ancestry is now absorbing them, so some you will be able to see. Not all of them, but, but a quite a bit of them, and especially the Native American records. Now, the first two links that I put up there are archives.gov and FamilySearch. They're free. And FamilySearch, I strongly encourage everybody to use anyway. FamilySearch is a great site. Um, it's run by the LDS Church, and they are uploading thousands of records every day. And it is just absolutely amazing. I would say probably check at least once or twice a month to see what is new. Um, but they do have a very impressive Native American collection as well. There's a book, if you've not seen it before, it's a finding aid. I don't know if it's in print or not. This is printed by the National Archives. And this is actually called A Select Catalog of National Archives Microfilm Publications. It is uh, or was $5. I have seen this being sold on eBay as well. So if you can't get it at the National Archives, just go on eBay. Somebody's selling it. it was, I have a copy of it here. I can pull it out maybe on one of the breaks and let you thumb through it so you can see. But it lists almost anything that has been microfilmed um, pertaining to Native American holdings. Keep in mind, though, that the National Archives also has a lot of records that have never been microfilmed. And so you do want to go and ask if you're going to Washington to maybe speak to the specialist, uh, if you're going to look at records beyond what I might show you here, um, because there are quite a few things that have never been microfilmed, and you'll be looking at original documents. Library of Congress, of course. You know, it's a wonderful place, wonderful facility. Um, all the newspapers in America at some point end up at the um, 
uh, Library of Congress, but there are also some tribal newspapers. Some of the earliest tribal newspapers I have seen come from the late 1840s of the Cherokee Nation. The Cherokee Phoenix is there. I have used the Choctaw Intelligencer, which was published only for two years, a bilingual newspaper in Choctaw and English, and um, they have copies of it there, probably the only known copies now to exist, but they have copies there uh, at um, the Library of Congress as well. I've already mentioned, of course, congressional records and, and the printed congressional records that come out. American state papers, which preceded the U.S. serial set and uh, the congressional records. In the earlier part of the 1800s, you'll find a lot of useful records. And within the American state papers, you can also um, print off a lot of the treaties. There are some online sites as well that I understand you can also print off some of the treaties. Some are very, very extensive. I say go online and take a look at something before you print it because you could easily use a ream of paper. But um, it is kind of useful pretending, depending upon what nation that you're researching. But don't forget your state archives, always a wonderful resource to use. This is um, a database, for example, for anyone who has ties to Oklahoma with the Oklahoma Historical Society, which just made a big partnership with um, um, Ancestry recently. But they also have a database, so if you have someone who might be on the Dawes Rolls, here is an online free database, just plug in um, um, a surname, and it hunts through all the hundreds of thousands of names that appeared on the Dawes Rolls. And you can search it by tribe, uh, or just, I always say, use it very, very broadly. Don't be very specific. Your ancestor may have been from Oklahoma, but if they lived in a community that was closer to another tribe, you may be looking at the wrong tribe. So, you know, keep it as broad as possible until you can narrow it down and get to what you want. Um, the National Archives also has some records online that you can look at. And a lot of people are not familiar with them, and I'll show you some of those a little bit later today. Fold 3 is amazing. It's, for some people, it's kind of an awkward site to research. I use it so often now, it's no longer awkward. But uh, definitely try Fold 3. Fold3.com, whenever there is a national holiday, and especially a holiday that honors veterans. Because Fold 3 is a site that pertains to military, they usually have a seven-day window when they open up everything for free. So even if you're thinking, well, I don't know if I really want to uh, get a sus subscription right away, wait until the next federal holiday. Usually they have a window there. Um, and also, I know, for example, they have a large African-American collection. Throughout the month of February, they made the African-American records all available for free as well. Pay attention to some of the sites that have these little freebies where they'll let you try it out um, so you can really decide whether or not this is something you want to spend money on. FamilySearch.org, of course, that's the Mormon site that I was just referring to, and Ancestry. Now, of course, we all know that the National Archives is sort of the home of the um, census, the federal census. 
and it is also the home of the special Indian census as well. And again, as you can see, um, that's the one that's cut in half with the 25 people. But what are those unique Indian records? Well, there are quite a few of them, and there are millions of pages to look at. Eastern Cherokee, very, very useful information. And the reason why I'm mentioning this, because you might say, well, gee, my folks really weren't Cherokee. They were from you know, another part of the country. In the early 1900s, the Cherokee Nation sued the United States government. They sued the U.S. government for lands that they lost, particularly for those who had to remove to the West. And um, they were, many had to move quickly once they committed to the move and were not able to sell their land. Their land was sort of uh, confiscated at that point. They sued the United States government and won their case. What happened as a result, it was decided to uh, allow several hundreds of thousands of dollars to be distributed among the individuals who could prove that they were number one Cherokee people and were considered Cherokee and had truly um, emigrated and had truly uh, lost lands as well. To prove that, they went through an interview process, and the process asked a lot of questions about who they were, who their parents were, where they lived, and so on. As a result, what really happened was a one-time payment, and we're talking about, oh, 1907, 08, 09. There was a one-time payment going to be made of $133 to every person who could document their Indian, or their Cherokee in particular, heritage. Well, it may not sound like a lot, but $133 at the beginning of the, 19th, of the 20th century could be a certainly a respectable amount of money. Well, everybody just about in America applied, whether they were Cherokee or not. And what has resulted is over 90,000 90, files that are available. Most of them were rejected because they weren't Cherokee, but the records are there, and the records are rich with family data. And this is a typical um, Cherokee application. And of course, many were, were eventually approved. You even had people who were in the territory uh, Indian Territory, you had some who remained and became U.S. citizens. You had people applying from Vermont you had, who had never been farther south than Vermont, but they were applying because, hey, the government's giving out $133. And um, so you had all kinds of applications. Now, what I don't think you can see it very clearly. This is uh, an application, William P. Rogers, who lived in the territory, and um, he lived in Claremore, eventually Claremore, Oklahoma. By 1909, Oklahoma was a state. Oklahoma entered the Union in 1907. So in this particular case, you see that he's there, and he talks about where he was born. He talks about his mother's name, his grandmother, his aunt, his great-great-aunt Polly, and he's going on giving all of this rich family data. This information is at the National Archives and this information has been digitized on Fold 3. And he goes on and talks about his father and his mother. He names many members of the family, not only here, but he names his parents down there as well. 
This, and he talks about where they lived, also in the Going Snake District of the Cherokee Nation. This is the Eastern Cherokee application for the family of Will Rogers. Some of you have heard of Will Rogers, the great American humorist. This is his family. On Family Search, which is the LDS site that I was talking about, one of the amazing things about Family Search, um, they don't have the Dawes records that Ancestry and Fall 3 will have, but they have the land records. And understand one major thing, removal, uh, people going west, people signing treaties. Some tribes actually really did live on reservations. Many didn't. Everything was about the land. Everything. Every conflict was about the land. Oh, you folks over here, well, we want your land. Don't y'all go west. We have a nice little, 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 little green fertile grass for you to go out west, a little place called the Indian Territory. Just sign this up and just head on out. We want your land. And especially you know that um, I think it was early 1840s or so when gold was discovered in parts of North Carolina and Georgia. Oh, you know that it was about the land at that point in particular as well. But what's amazing is that on, on uh, the LDS site, you can find the application for land allotments. The Dawes rolls that we're going to look at, we're going to look at the cards and some of the application jackets. It was all to determine who was eligible to, see, to receive a land allotment. Once they were approved, then they had to go and then formally apply to get their land allotment. Well, the actual application is online, fully digitized on Family Search, and look at the categories that you can get. I know it's a bit blurred, so um, I'll just mention some of them. Cherokee Freedmen, Cherokees by Blood, Cherokees by Intermarriage, Chickasaw Freedmen by Blood, Choctaw Citizens by Marriage, Creek Freedmen, Creeks by Blood, Minor Chickasaws by Blood, Minor Choctaw Freedmen, and on and on and on. Everyone who was approved, even babies, got a land allotment. Their parents had to apply on their behalf. So if there was a family with five or six children, then the father, the mother, and all of those six children got anywhere from 40 acres to 320 acres each. So they had to apply, and if your families are from some of these nations, you could submit an application. And I'll show you what some of those look like in another session. Fold three, I mentioned the Native American collection, and if you look, you'll see the different categories. Cherokee Indian Agency, Dawes and Roman cards, Dawes packets. The packets can be as thick as 80, 90 pages. Eastern Cherokee applications, we saw a little bit with Will Rogers' application. The Guion Miller rolls, those 90,000 files, which means multiple pages per file. Indian census rolls, 1885 to 1940. Those records are also on Ancestry, the, um, this particular category of records. This pertains mostly 
to Western tribes out in the Great Plains. Um, these pertain to communities where they came under supervision of an Indian agent or a superintendent, as they call it, um, mostly in the Western nations. So if you're mostly east of the Mississippi, then this would not really contain uh, records from there. And, of course, you can get a chance to read um, some excerpts of some of the ratified treaties as well. And I mentioned a land application. This is my grandfather's brother. This is my Uncle Houston. And this is a copy of just a statement when he was given a citizenship certificate in the Choctaw Nation. And it says it's being, he was, he was a child. He was being represented by his father, Samuel Walton. And um, um, great-grandpa Sam filed for everybody in the family to get that. Um, this is one where my grandfather, he was applying for my grandfather's uh, allotted land as well. And of course, on Ancestry, you do have the actual enrollment cards. This is one for my great-grandparents. Now, I started this research in 1991. And imagine, and back in those days, I don't know if anyone here was doing research back in those days at the National Archives. At that time, you had to go to the fourth floor and there was a little microfilm room, and you'd just sit there and just crank microfilm all day long. And imagine my surprise in May of 1991. I'm cranking, looking at Choctaw Freedman. I wasn't even sure what that meant. And suddenly I came across the names I knew. There was Samuel Walton, Sally Walton, my great-grandmother, whom I knew and loved, there is Uncle Houston, there is Sam Jr., that's my grandpa Sam, and there's Aunt Louisa. We called her Louisa, looks like Louisa. And, and then, of course, looking, looking across, there's a column that stunned me. It says, slave of Jim Davis. Sally, whom I knew personally, I'm looking across and see slave of Emmeline Perry. I did not know until that point that in my lifetime, I knew someone who had been born enslaved. She died in 1961. She was 98 years old when she died, and I never knew this. But that explained why they were placed on something called the Freedman Roll. They had been freed from bondage. The Indian tribes and the citizens that, um, well, slavery was, was um, a part of the culture and tradition, not ancient tradition, but for certainly at least four to six decades, slavery, black chattel slavery, was practiced in five of the tribes, Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Muscogee Creek, and Seminole Nations. As early as the 1700s, I'm not sure if it was 1771, 74, 75, uh, one of the most beloved women in the Cherokee Nation is Nancy Ward. She became a, um, a beloved woman, and she was given that title, Gigao, which in the Cherokee language means beloved woman. She was so honored because in a particular battle, it was the Battle of Telema, and it was some skirmish between Indians and white settlers. And in that skirmish, her husband was killed. She ran to her husband's side. She picked up his axe and went after and killed her husband's assailant. Everyone was so amazed at her bravery. 
she was elevated to stature of that of beloved woman. One of her prizes for being so courageous was a Negro slave. By the 1800s, she was a regular purchaser of slaves. Slavery became a part of not only Cherokee Nation, but the other nations that had assimilated to European culture, and which is why they somehow were designated civilized tribes as opposed to, I guess, uncivilized. Um, but they were, in many ways, Europeanized. And um, slavery was a part of their culture and, uh, or certainly of their practice and lifestyle. <coughs> lifestyle. Did everyone have slaves? No. Every white person in America didn't have slaves either. But it was still a legal institution, nevertheless. Slavery was b abolished in Indian Territory in 1866, a year after the Civil War had ended and a year after the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that abolished slavery in the United States. In 1866, the treaty was signed with the tribes in Fort Smith, Arkansas, abolishing slavery. And imagine my surprise when I saw this document that appeared. I mentioned the 1885 census that can be found on Ancestry as well as on Fall 3. Note that um, this is, it's really rich of de with data and it's multiple tribes. On the left, this is a document from people who were Eastern Cherokee and this particular census. Notice these years are kind of odd, 1885 to 1940. Well, what does that mean exactly? That means that there were all kinds of census records that were being created and all kinds of enumerations that were going on. The document on the left is of Eastern Cherokees, and this particular document was created, sorry, was created in 1923. Okay, three years after the 1920 census and seven years before the 1930 census. So, and here's a document from Mississippi Choctaw in 1926. Odd years, but it's amazing to look at the set of records. Here is an Indian census roll for Winnebago Indians, and this was documenting the students who were enrolled in an Indian school. Now, there is one school set of school records that I have looked at, uh, census records, from the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. You can find the documentation, uh, documentation of those students online on Ancestry because they were captured in the 1910 Special Indian Census. I already mentioned the Oklahoma uh, Historical Society. I want to also mention colleges and universities. There's a wonderful collection of interviews made in the state of Oklahoma during the 1930s. Now, uh, many of you have read or heard of the slave narratives, the WPA slave narratives, a series of interviews that were conducted in the 1930s of people who had once been enslaved. Well, the state of Oklahoma also conducted a series of interviews, and they call them Indian Pioneer Papers. And it's part of the Western History Collection at the University of Oklahoma. It's absolutely amazing. And on this site from the University of Oklahoma, there are over 116 volumes of interviews. The interviews, there are no taped versions, but they're printed 
volumes of interviews. People who lived before statehood in what became Oklahoma, and referring to both territories, the twin territories, Indian Territory, which is eastern Oklahoma, and Oklahoma Territory, which is western Oklahoma. Um, over 116 volumes are captured. And white, black, Indian, people from multiple tribes, multiple states, it's absolutely wonderful to take a look at them. This is an example of one of the interviews. This is the interviewer uh, and the person who was writing up this report decided to speak with people of African ancestry and talk to them about the freedom celebrations that people had. And the freedmen celebrations, as they referred to, talks about what was going on in the Cherokee Nation. And she talked about the fact that it was a custom among former Cherokee slaves to celebrate April, August, the 4th as Emancipation Day. And up until, I guess, the 1950s, there were regular Emancipation Day celebrations in Cherokee country. Actually, it also was in um, the Creek Nation as well. But this person captured this interview in 1937 talking about the Freedmen celebrations. There's an interview of someone from Hugh Alexander Ferguson was being interviewed and talked about being born in Texas, but what he saw when he moved to Oklahoma, he saw Geronimo, he saw Lone Wolf, who was a Kiowa, and he saw uh, Big Tree and found some other people, including Quanta Parker, and just some interesting pieces that this person was able to share. Another uh, person talked about the Sac and Fox Indians who were eventually from the Midwest and were relocated also to Oklahoma, and this person talked about that as well. But I know everybody's saying, okay, she keeps talking about Oklahoma. All right, I'm tired of this. I know people from Maryland, North Carolina, Virginia. How many people have Maryland-based ancestry? Okay. Quite a few hands. Uh, Virginia-based ancestry, few hands. Further north, anyone further north than that? New York, uh, New England, okay. Any further south? Uh, Carolinas, Florida, oh, okay. I see hands from all over the room. Yes, I do know that Indians were east of the Mississippi River. So New England, Mid-Atlantic, southeast, Florida, and points in between. Well, there are some resources for you to use as well. You're not going to necessarily find the Dawes rolls, but you are going to be able to use military records. Your local history is going to be critical for you. You really have to study your local history because that is going to open the doors the most for you in terms of records. And the federal census will become your main tool. Now, if you have ancestors that you've documented from Maryland, from Virginia, from uh, New Jersey, from all over, military records, and if you go back to free people and you have people documented well before the Civil War, then you may get back to people who were part of the American Revolution. There is a critical book that you want to become familiar with. It is called Forgotten Patriots. This book was published by the DAR, The Daughters of American Revolution. It is very impressive. It's a huge book. And I would assume that there may be a copy. I don't know if there's a copy here at Enid Pratt or not. Uh, but it is also online, and it is fully digitized. The name of the book is called 
Forgotten Patriots. Native American patriots are listed in this journal, as are African American. And I think I have a copy of what it looks like. And of course, the American Indian Guide to Microfilm Records. I do have a copy of it somewhere here that I will show you. I'll show it in a break. This is what the book looks like, Forgotten Patriots. And as it's African American and American Indian Patriots in the Revolutionary War. This sometimes may be your key because one of the things you're going to do is you're doing your genealogy, you are going to study the community's history. I know when we first get started, all of us want to collect names. We want to get as many names as we can in our little family tree program, and we want to get uh, as, go back as far as we can, as fast as we can. But you want to slow down and you want to study. Am I not correct? Okay. Um, but you do want to slow down because when you slow down, you're going to be able to get the story. And when you study the community, you're going to be surprised the kinds of things that you'll be able to find. Keeping in mind, uh, your ancestors shared a lot of things in common with their neighbors. And the best example, if you know anybody who was born in New Orleans, that person has a Katrina story. Every Katrina story is going to be different, but everybody has a story. Well, everybody in a community has a story to tell as well. So you want to study the community's history. This is a page from Forgotten Patriots. This is just a sample page. I underlined in red on this just random page, page 294, and I just underlined the names of various people who were identified as Indian on that page. And I know you can't see them all. On the um, first line, it mentions Samuel Wags, sometimes written as Wags, I guess. And they, they put all the spellings in there from their index and said that he was a seaman on the Oliver Cromwell. There was no residence given, but you can probably, that's pointing you to some records at the DAR Library, Constitution Hall, that you can go and probably find a lot more information on this person. Going down, um, farther down in the middle of the page there, um, here's a person here um, whose name, last name was Wampy, W-A-M-P-E-Y or P-Y, who was a Mashantucket Pequot. Okay, he also served on the Ledyard. He was from Connecticut. And such wonderful information that is there. And all of just, it's just so rich and full of data. They do include, thankfully, in this index, all kinds of variations of spelling as well. But this is a very useful book to have. Hunt for it. It's out of print now, but it is digitized. But I know a lot of people want to have their own copy of it. Um, do an eBay search. You may actually find a copy of it as well. I use eBay for a lot of things, so. Uh, and, of course, I've already mentioned the National Archives guide. County history is very, very important. I'm still talking about people in the East, okay? Your county history is critical. You're going to have to learn who were the people who were there. Learn, you may be surprised from one county to another. You may have three different counties and three different tribes that people were dealing with. Your county history is where you're going to find the information. And many times it might be land records where you're going to find it. 
Trading was something that has happened since the 1400s, and even in some pre-colonial records, you'll often find some references to the Indian people who lived in that area. In the East as well as the West, 19th and 20th century records are essential for you to use. And from 1870 onward, you're going to find fairly regular enumerations of Indian communities. So it's very important that you're going to use these records. I've mentioned, of course, census records. You're going to find almost all the tribes documented somewhere, sometime. Maybe not every year, because some tribes eventually were absorbed by others. Some eventually died out. Some migrated. Um, so there were changes. Guion Miller Rose, although it's reflecting the Eastern Cherokee, I tell you to look at it anyway, because you may find your family there, because people from everywhere in the country wanted to get that $133. Henderson Roll, that's pretty exclusively Cherokee. There were immigration rolls before people left on the Trail of Tears. There are all kinds of amazing, amazing census rolls that are there. The Dawes rolls representing the five civilized tribes, which is one of the largest and one of the most popular rolls that people use. And then these rolls in particular were freedmen, former slaves in Cherokee and Creek nations in particular. And the federal census, that special Indian census, multiple states. Now, in terms of where you're going to find them, starting at home, looking at your courthouse, your library records, and census, census is probably the most critical thing. I'll say something about Maryland in particular. Maryland's interesting because Maryland does have a Native American history. has a very rich one. And just look at some of the names of towns of water from Susquehanna, Nanakoke. These are Indian names. But you'll find that in Maryland, it's very interesting, because I've done a lot of census work. I have found people who are designated as Native American who were born in Maryland, but I find them in other states. I rarely find a large Indian community documented in Maryland. Not that they were not there, but many had started intermarrying in the 1700s, they became recognized as whatever that dominant culture may be. Some became uh, assimilated into communities of free people of color, and Maryland had a lot of free people in it who were African and Indian as well. Some became assimilated into white communities as well. So Maryland is, is very unique. Whenever I find a person who's Native American born in Maryland, they're living somewhere else. And surprisingly, I'm not quite sure why, uh, I found a few on Canadian records as well. And again, not sure why that is. But um, Delaware, the Delaware Indians in, actually ended up going west, and they have been absorbed into the, to the Cherokee Nation. And you even find adopted Delawares as a separate classification within the Cherokee Nation. And they still within that tiny population, there are still people who speak the Delaware language in Oklahoma, and they are descendants from Delawares as well. And Delawares were at one point partially in Maryland as well. Virginia and the Carolinas, you will find a lot of good census records there. But Maryland's just one of those odd states for whatever reason. There are some limitations. Everybody is not going to document their Indian heritage for a number of reasons. 
Sometimes the information that they heard in the family wasn't accurate. They're just saying, oh, Grandma had long hair. She must be Indian. That's not genealogy. And sometimes the history is in conflict with the local history. Yeah, she was full-blooded Blackfoot. Oh, she lived in Macon, Georgia. And she wasn't full-blooded Blackfoot um, because there's no Blackfoot community in that area. Some elders are just repeating words that they heard as a child, but they misinterpreted it. There's a workshop I attended several years ago, and a woman shared an anecdote with the group. And she said, you know, it was very interesting because uh, one of her cousins had asked his mother, well, why don't we ever talk about our Indian heritage? And the mother said, well, that makes you think we're Indian. They were very Irish. Why do you think we're Indians? Well, I was always told that. Remember when I was a kid? Um, you know, I always heard that we were Blackfoot. And the mother started laughing and said, no, no. You remember Grandma when she used to say, here comes my little Blackfoot Indian, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, Blackfoot. He said, because you never wore shoes a lot. You were always outside. You would always come in, and your feet would always be dirty. And we just called you the Blackfoot Indian. It was a joke. Here was an adult, had heard this term, and was probably in the generation, which I'm a part of as well, who was stimulated by the Westerns, you know. I mean, I grew up watching Gunsmoke and Rawhide, Wagon Train, and all of those Westerns. And this person's like, oh, okay. Remember when Burt Reynolds used to play that guy on Gunsmoke? Um, and it's very, very interesting, but he just misinterpreted something that was said jokingly to him. That can happen. And, of course, some people will base their Indianness on racial features. Or this is very real. Some individuals speak of an Indian in the family to avoid association with another group. There are white families, have a picture of a family gathering, and, oh, that dark-skinned person, oh, I said so-and-so, you know, she was really Indian. Maybe she wasn't. And there are black families in the family who have that long hair, light-skinned person. Oh, she was Indian. Maybe she wasn't. So these are some of the limitations. Suggestions that I have, stick with your local history. Avoid invention. And I have to say that again. Avoid invention. You cannot create a satisfactory reason why so-and-so on the census record is listed as black in every census year that they lived through. You cannot invent why. You can only report what you see. Also, I strongly advise people to, and I'll talk about this later on today, to keep your genealogical research, your historical research, separated from the issue of tribal enrollment. That is a political issue. It is something that is a tribal policy. And if you pay attention to Indian news, people are being disenrolled from a tribe they have been a part of since the beginning of time. Enrollment, tribal enrollment, that's political. Your genealogy, if it's done in a sound way, will not change and no one can, can disenroll you from your history. So you want to separate the two processes. Research to find the story, not to prove the Indian. If the person is there as native, he or she will be found. Incorporate the national story. 
into your family history as well. Native Americans began contact with Europeans as early as the 1400s. And also, by the time settlement became very, very common, some of the earliest slaves were Native Americans as well, some who ended up in the Caribbean, some who died from exposure to disease. And also, black chattel slavery was a part of some Indian tribes, and some of the Indians who moved to the West took slaves with them. Other groups, such as some in Maryland, were absorbed into larger non-Indian populations. That's simply what happened. And some communities changed and have become part of another community. Life is very dynamic. The only tribes that are static are extinct. Life is a dynamic experience. So standard genealogical methodology, and we're going to talk about that later, there's not one paintbrush that you can paint across Indian country and say this is what happened. There are over right now 550 federal recognized tribes, and there were more than that certainly before the whole process of, of recognition occurred. And there's no one unique story that describes everything that happened. But you do want to follow the genealogical trail to tell your story. Let's take a break. I need something to drink right now. I'm sure many of you have. And we'll start up in about, oh, another 10 minutes or so. Get a chance to stretch. <laughs> 